When I was a teenager, I don't remember the moment it happened, but I know at some point when I was a teenager, my dad sat me down and introduced me to the classic 80s movie, The Karate Kid. And, and some of y'all might have missed it. Generationally, you know, maybe that Karate Kid didn't come into your life in the way that it did for me, but it's worth watching. It's kind of a cool movie. That The story follows a young guy named Daniel, uh, his family, his, he and his mom move across country, and in this new town, he sort of begins that common teenage experience of having persistent run-ins with bullies. But Daniel's situation was worse than mine ever was because his bullies were the highly trained karate artists from the Cobra Kai dojo. And so they just beat him up, man. I mean, it was, they were high-eyeing and everything, chopping him. It was bad. And so he decided that he was going to have to learn to defend himself. And so he started to teach himself martial arts. And one day while he was doing this, something in their apartment was broken, and the handyman came to fix it. He watched Daniel practicing these moves, and he said, hey, you know, it looks like you could use a teacher. And so this man turns out to be Mr. Miyagi, who trains Daniel in the ways of karate. And so Daniel begins this training in, in an unexpected way. I mean, Daniel ends up really frustrated by this because instead of running him through all the moves, uh, my mom would never let me do karate. She saw in me a mean streak, I guess, that I would be one of these evil Cobra Kai guys. But, uh, but so it's something like this, I think. Instead of learning all these moves, Mr. Miyagi had Daniel out front waxing his classic cars. And some of y'all know, wax on wax off, right? He had him paint his fence up and I forget, was it up, wipe, swipe up? I don't remember what he said there, but brush up, brush down, okay? And he had him doing all these menial tasks. And there's this point in the movie where Daniel's done. He's like, I came to you because you told me you could teach me karate and all you are doing is taking advantage of me and making me wax your cars and paint your fence. In the moment, all those tasks for Daniel Seem really mundane, menial, without any relation to the bigger picture. But then when Daniel began his actual martial arts training, he understood that all the waxing on and waxing off was ingraining defensive maneuvers so that when somebody was going to, you know, come at him, he could wax on and, you know, get rid of that guy. He could brush up and, yeah, and he was safe. And see, the deal about this is that we are always in danger of making the same mistake Daniel did. He saw the tasks disconnected from the bigger picture of what Mr. Miyagi had in mind. And when we read passages like the one Mike just read for us, I mean, it's like a water hose. It's an endless stream of commands. Don't tell lies. Don't be angry. Be generous. Let no filthy words come out of your mouth. We see these individual commands and we turn them into checklists, uh, you know, to-do lists. Hey, today I'm not going to cuss at all. You know, for some of us, that's harder than others, right? Today I'm not going to say anything mean. I'm just going to be nice. We disconnect them from the bigger picture. This bigger picture that Paul's been laying out for the Ephesians and that we're going to get to see today in really vivid detail uh, and, and so this morning, I want you to see, let's get this sermon in a sentence out there so we can at least have a place to start from. 
This morning, I want you to see that our experience of God's work in us transforms our relationship with each other. Okay, our experience of God's work is the bigger picture. What He is doing in us to transform us into the image of His Son and renewing in us uh, the image of God. And that is going to have implications for the way you and I interact. And that's what Paul's going to explain here in the passage we've just read. Now, for the past few weeks, this is our last week in Ephesians 4. Some of y'all are happy about this. I think it's message 4, maybe. But we've been working off of this premise begun back in verse 1, where Paul told the Ephesians to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. There is a standard that God is expecting his people to live up to. We live up to that standard when we maintain and promote the unity of the Spirit in the church by using the gifts that God's given us. We saw that two and three weeks ago. Last week, we saw that there's another dimension of living up to that, and it is pursuing personal holiness by taking on a way of life that's distinct from the world and begins with the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, who helps us to put off the old person, to re be renewed in our minds, and to put on the new person, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And all of that is sort of the big picture. It's laying the groundwork in which we understand the details of this passage. And so this morning, this is the part two to last week's sermon. This is the actual practical stuff. And I told you up front that my sermon's a little bit longer because there's a lot here. And actually, I was planning to preach all the way through chapter 5, verse 2, but I'm just going to have to leave chapter 5 for next time. And so I'm, we're going to kind of skim through it, look at these quickly, but I hope you'll write down and you'll have the outline that you can fill in later on these, what I'm calling principles of a transformed life. All right, and the first principle of a transformed life, the actual nitty-gritty of what a Christian's life should look like, begins with speaking the truth. That's what Paul says in verse 25. He says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Paul says, put away falsehood, or the New Living Translation says, stop telling lies. That's interesting, isn't it? I mean, of all the practical things Paul's going to talk about in the second half of Ephesians, the way we relate to each other in the church, the way we live in the world, the way we conduct ourselves at home, the very first thing he says is, y'all better stop lying. I mean, I think this is because falsehood, bending the truth, fibbing, fudging, telling white lies, these things come naturally to us. You know, I've got a four and a five-year-old, and it's amazing the things they will lie about. They will lie about everything. My daughter cut her hair a couple weeks ago, straight across. That's why she's got bangs. Some of y'all just thought we were going to make her cute, you know, but nah, she cut her bangs. And Erin asked her, she said, Mary Jo, what happened to your hair? Nothing. <laughs> we clearly can see. And so children will lie to your face, and it's just amazing. But the sad thing is adults will do it too. They'll lie right to you. And you can tell. You can read them. They'll lie on their taxes. They'll lie in the newspaper. They'll lie over a cup of coffee. It just seems like falsehoods come naturally to us. And this natural bent towards lies is actually more evidence of our spiritual condition before we knew Christ. I mean, Paul talked about it back in Ephesians chapter 2. Some of y'all memorized this. This is Ephesians 2, verse 2. He said, We were following the prince of the power of the air, 
the spirit that's now at work among the sons of disobedience. And we talked about it that week, that this spirit is Satan, right? The devil. And when Jesus would talk about the devil, he'd describe him in different ways. But one time in John chapter 8, he said of the devil, there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he's a liar and the father of liars. So when Paul gets ready to talk to the Ephesians about the kind of life they are supposed to experience, this transformed life, the reason telling the truth comes first is because you can pretty much distinguish between all types of people with one simple test. Do they tell the truth or not? If they're a liar, well, they're of their father, the devil, who is the father of lies. And so being people who are set free from our bondage to the spirit that's now at work among the sons of disobedience, being raised from spiritual death to take on new life, Paul says, y'all better stop telling lies. Your father's not the devil. It's the father in heaven. And he's given you his spirit. Get this, of whom Jesus says in John 15, 26, is the spirit of truth. So Christians need to learn to speak the truth. All right? Now, it's true that when it comes to speaking the truth, Christians ought to be trustworthy in their relationships with everyone, right? People whose word is their bond. That should be who we are as Christians. But this whole section is primarily focused on our relationship to other Christians. And that comes through with Paul's explanation of why it's so important to stop telling lies and start telling the truth. He says, for we are members of one another. We're members of one another. We are connected Remember, Paul's talked about this. He says we are each stones being built up into a spiritual dwelling place for God. Back in chapter 4, he relates us as members of the body of Christ, that we are connected and we're building each other up so that we grow into the fullness of the head, who is Jesus. Now he says that the God-created unity in the church is furthered by our honesty with each other. I like the way that the fourth century preacher John Chrysostom. His, his name means golden-mouthed. Uh, he was an excellent preacher. He said this. He said, if the eye sees a snake, does it lie to the foot? If the nose smells poison, does it lie to the tongue? If the tongue tastes bitterness, does it lie to the stomach? No. The human body is constantly taking in all sorts of sensory things, Tastes, touch, smells, sights, sounds. I've almost lost that fifth one. But it all works together so that we understand what our world is doing. And Paul says, since we're members of each other, we ought not lie to each other. That what you know to be the truth is important for me. Paul says that we're to speak the truth to each other in love and so build up the body of Christ. When we're dishonest, we subvert God's intention of making us one. And so Paul says, stop telling lies and start speaking the truth. But the second principle of a transformed life is important too. Right? He says, pursue reconciliation instead of anger. I know, we'll get there. He says this in verse 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. This is one of these challenging commands in the New Testament. Be angry and do not sin. 
Uh, you should, preachers and commentators, I mean, we wrestle with this, trying to understand. There's basically two ways you can take it. Uh, I had a pastor who emphasized that this is a prohibition against anger. You should never be angry. Many others say that it's not a prohibition against anger in every case, but it's showing you the boundaries of anger. So when you get angry, don't sin. But in either case, it's, here's the challenge. I know myself, and I know times when I've been angry. And a lot of times when I'm angry, I end up doing and saying things that get me in more trouble. So the question is, how do I know when I'm angry not to sin? And so Paul explains this. I mean, it's helpful to understand. Paul's quoting here directly from Psalm 4.4. And you, you could look it up. It says the same exact words, be angry and do not sin. And Psalm 4 is a personal psalm of lament. The psalmist is crying out to God. He is uh, surrounded by his enemies who are constantly mocking him. And he's saying, God, I'm counting on you. Where are you? And he's charging all these mockers to return to faithfulness to God. The psalmist was the righteous sufferer that we see over and over and over throughout the psalms, calling on God to hear his prayer. And like many of the psalms, Psalm 4 has messianic and prophetic undertones. When you imagine Jesus as the speaker of Psalm 4, things become crystal clear. And Jesus often interacted with mockers. The religious elite uh, were stubbornly resistant to his message. And one time, uh, well, let's read it. It's in Mark chapter 3. And it's going to be up here on the screen. So if you don't have time to turn there, you should be okay. It says, again, he entered the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus. That's the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, these religious elite. They were watching him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And they said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Now when we think about Jesus and anger, our minds, right, where do they go? The cleansing of the temple. He sits down, takes time to weave a whip. But if you look there, it says he became zealous. Uh, it's not actually the word for anger. This is um, Jesus angry. And Jesus is angry not over, you know, getting cut off in traffic. Or, you know, when your children won't obey the simple, simple requests you give them. It's not your spouse getting un under your skin. It's not the rights being infringed upon. Jesus was angry at the willful spiritual stubbornness of the people who mocked him. Who would literally, I mean, it's hard to even fathom, who would refrain from answering a simple question, which is better, to save a life or to kill a life? Because their hearts were so hard. That's what made Jesus mad. Spiritual stubbornness and hardness of heart. 
This anger reflects the same anger that Zechariah describes in Zechariah 7.12 and 10.3 when God says that he is angry at his people because even though he sent prophet after prophet after prophet to call them back to faithfulness, they refused. And in his anger, he brought their enemies upon them and sent them away into exile. This is the anger of God. And so it's clear that I don't believe that Ephesians 4, 26, and 27 is an absolute prohibition against anger. I don't think every act of anger is a sin because Jesus is perfect God-man, 100% obedient to God's law without sin, and he was angry. But here's what I know, that what Paul is talking about is something different than the anger ascribed to Jesus or God the Father. Uh, he's talking about what James calls the anger of man. And what he says in verse 20, never produces the righteousness of God. It is the anger that is a reaction to some perceived slight, whether it's a verbal uh, insult, or whether it is somebody carelessly cutting you off in traffic and you, hey, who do you think you are? It's the anger that responds with passion to something that someone else does. And Paul says, in the church we have to be always on guard against it because it will split the church apart. You see, unchecked anger is a particularly deadly poison, Paul says, because it provides a place for the devil. You see that in verse 27? Give no place to the devil. The idea here that Paul has in mind is that we, uh, our enemy, Satan, is constantly looking for weaknesses in the walls of the church. Constantly looking for opportunities to weasel in and subvert God's plans. And one of the best places for him is anger. That unresolved conflict in the church when it's allowed to fester and ferment leads to worse sins. Leads to things like revenge and dissension. And so Paul says, instead of giving a place to the devil, don't let the sun go down on your anger. This is a, an often quoted proverb. Uh, we have it in other places in, the, in uh, ancient Greek literature besides the New Testament. And it refers to the idea of, you know, if, if you sin against a person in that day, there's no better time to resolve that conflict than that same day. If you go to bed and sleep on it, you'll be up all night, tossing and turning. You'll replay the event in your head, and you wake up in the morning, you'll be even more mad than you were when you laid down. I, can I get an amen? Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. Yeah, you know exactly it. And so Paul says, hey, pursue reconciliation quickly. Don't even let the sun go down on your anger. If you, if you get into a fight in the morning, try to work it out before you lay your head on the bed. And if you get in a fight at night when it's dark, the, still, the point still applies. Fix it as quickly as possible. Otherwise, it'll fester, ferment, and it'll blow things wide open, and it'll be worse off than you can ever imagine. So, pursue reconciliation. Don't be angry. The third principle of a transformed life, Paul says, is to be generous. And I really like this one. Paul says in verse 28, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. This is what amazes me about Paul and about the New Testament, about Jesus, is that, um, you know, unlike some of us, we feel like we need to present ourselves as perfect and to put this fake smile on our face and to act like we've got it all figured out. 
But when Paul writes to the church, I mean, to people who are already made alive in Christ, they've already put off their old self, they've put, been renewed in their mind and put on the new self, he can still call them thieves. He looks in the church and he says, hey, y'all thieves in the church, stop stealing. And, and that's the case. I mean, it makes no sense for a person who's been made new to be a thief. I don't know about you. When I think about thief, I think about the professional cat burglar, a jewel thief, an art thief, you know, a person who's highly specialized in what they're doing. And so, you know, it's interesting to think maybe the Ephesian church contained the highest concentration of Christian burglars anywhere in the world. I don't know. But actually, as I was doing some research, that's not what people think it is at all. It's not professional thieves. Instead, I like the way uh, the commentator Honer said it. He said, these aren't professional thieves, but these are people who like to skim a little off the top for themselves. Laborers who stole things they handled, or the shopkeepers who cheated their customers. You know, the person who, when they're weighing out your beans, uh, puts their thumb on the scale, so they uh, take all your money and give you less beans than you deserve. At one point, I had, I had heard this. I don't, I, how, how many millions of dollars um, office supply theft costs America's major corporations? And everybody's constantly, you know, pocketing a pen or a sticky notepad or a yellow legal pad, and they just walk off without any kind of concept of that. And in our minds, uh, you know, th those types of things are innocent. Uh, you know, we don't think twice about them. But what Paul says is that the person who makes ends meet by taking advantage of others, needs to rethink their approach to life. Rather than being a thief, they need to work with their hands. I mean, it's just crazy. If you translated it um, as literally as you could, it would be something like, do exhausting work with your hands. I mean, he's talking about hard labor. The thieves are used to, you know, like the sticky bandits from Home Alone. They just wrap their hands in tape and pick up whatever they can. Paul says, now don't use your hands to steal. Use your hands for work. And the purpose behind this is not just to hold up hard work or manual labor as the only appropriate vocation for Christians. You know, as a person who makes a living sitting behind a computer chair, I find comfort in that. You know, I've not entered into the wrong line of work. But there is something appropriate and right for Christians to do hard work. I mean, Paul often held his life up as an example for other Christians, and, and almost uh, every time he talks about the work he did, he described it in these terms. He says in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 12, we labor working with our own hands. You know, he's a tent maker. He told the church in Thessalonica that he did not eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we work night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. You know, Paul's approach in life wasn't to live merely on the generosity of others, but he wanted to, to be a contributing part. And he called the thieves in the church to stop stealing, to stop making ends meet by taking advantage of others, and instead to put themselves to work. Now, here's the thing about this. We are people, I mean, globally speaking, we are the richest people who have ever lived in the history of the world, I mean, Americans as a whole. Then you take many of us, and we live pretty comfortable lives. And we find, I find, let me just be transparent, I find in this verse a vindication 
of some of the values that I hold dear. The importance of hard work, of keeping your head down, and if you just do a good job, eventually the cream rises to the top, and it'll all work out for you. And this is what um, the sociologist Max Weber talks about as the Protestant work ethic that spread from Europe to the New World and gave us the ideas of capitalism and free markets, that self-sufficiency is what rules. And so some people would see this as a vindication of that, as an a, a biblical affirmation of the pursuit of the American dream. Hey, stop being a thief. Stop living on the generosity of others. Put your head down, put your hands to work, and you'll get what you want. But that's not what Paul says. Paul doesn't say, hey, work hard, and in the end, it'll work out best for you. He says, work with your hands so that you may have something to share with anyone in need. Paul's not talking about hard work for the purpose of self-enrichment. That's not very Christian at all. Instead, he's talking about love of neighbor, where you do hard work so that you'll have to give to those in need. He's calling the church to be generous. To be generous. I'm thankful for y'all's generosity. And our, God has blessed our church through your faithfulness and giving. It's just a side note. The fourth principle of a transformed life. Use your words to build people up. Use your words to build people up. Paul says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So just as the thief was called to give up thievery and to work hard with his hands so that he might give to those who are in need, now Paul says that we need to rethink the way we use our words. That we often use our words to tear people down, but instead we need to see how we can use our words to build people up. And the way he describes the speech that Christians are supposed to leave behind is pretty interesting. He calls it unwholesome in the New American Standard Bible. That's the way they translate it, unwholesome. Um, the ESV calls it corrupting talk or talk that corrupts. And the NLT, the New Living Translation, calls it foul or abusive speech. The actual Greek, Greek word, sarpos, was used to describe the smell of rotten wood, decaying flowers, and rancid fish. It's amazing how something as beautiful as a flower can give off the smell it gives off when it's dying. And it's true. This is the way some of our speech is. It's foul. It stinks. These are the bad words that we learn from an early age not to use. But Paul means more than just replacing those bad words with their less bad euphemisms. After all, the replacement for the rotten speech is words spoken for a different purpose entirely. And I think the ESV captures it really good, okay? Because I'm a New American Standard Bible guy. That's what I read in my quiet time. So I read this first and was like, unwholesome speech. Okay, it's foul. It stinks. But the ESV does something interesting. When we talk about these words as being unwholesome or foul-smelling, we're talking about what those words are. They stink. These are bad words. But the ESV says corrupting talk. Not what they are, but what they do. And I think that's what Paul has in mind. He's not just worried about the smell they give off, like, hey, it'd be better if you just kind of left that outside, your shoes really stink. Right? Not like that. What he's, what he's worried about is the impact foul speech can have on the body of Christ. It's not just that you have to smell them, but it corrupts the fellowship that God's created. 
And he's already talked extensively about our speech. He said back in chapter 425 that we should speak the truth. Put away falsehood, speak the truth. In chapter uh, 415, he said we should speak the truth in love. Over in Colossians 4, which is kind of like the brother letter, Paul says our speech should always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that we'll know how to answer each person. Peter picks up on this, kind of broadens the scope, not just to the church, but to the whole world. He says, Honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to give a defense for the hope you have, yet do it with gentleness and respect. See, there's a way to use our words to tear people down, to corrupt fellowship. You know, this is not just cuss words. This is gossip. This is slander. Abusive speech. Things that cause harm to the people who hear it and the people who say it. You know, that's the, that's the huge concern I have for social media. I signed up for Twitter in 2007. And it was a really wonderful place. My friends were there and we could talk with each other. In 2016, I canceled my Twitter account altogether because I couldn't take it anymore. Not because there were so many crazy people on there just spouting lies. Now, that was true. There's some unwholesome speech on social media. But I didn't like what it did to me. That I'd get on there and I'd swipe through and scroll through and I would get anxious and worried. I felt my own soul disintegrating before my very eyes. Whatever peace I had from reading the Bible that morning was gone when I opened up Twitter. And that's the danger of unwholesome speech. What it does to us. And so Paul says, put away your unwholesome speech. And instead, build each other up. Use your words to build. So taking together these four principles, right? Um, speak the truth, pursue reconciliation, be generous and use your words to build up. These all sort of start to paint this picture of the type of person God is working in us to make us. But if you take these on their own, as just commands like Paul gives them, we're back to the problem we started at the beginning. We're back to the checklist. So you write it down and you go home and you eat over lunch and you're talking about, hey, you know, what did you think about the sermon this morning? Man, I, and I got a lot of work to do. You know, I need to pursue reconciliation and build people up. And that's good. But this next principle of a transformed life really starts to give shape to all the others because it helps us understand the bigger picture of what God's doing. And so look at this. It, it, it follows a little bit different pattern. Paul's been pretty consistent in the way he went. But Ephesians 4.30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. See, this one, this command, roots all the other commands in the relationship that you and I have with God. These are not just isolated, divine principles handed down by the heavenly karate master trying to teach us the type of person to be. Instead, these are the natural outworking of a person who has been sealed by the Holy Spirit. We talked about this sealing back in Ephesians chapter 1. Um, Paul identified it as one of the blessings that is ours in Christ. He says in Ephesians 1.13, In Him, that's in Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. 
We saw that passage. I tried to make the point that this sealing is a mark of God's ownership. It's like the brand that the rancher puts on his cattle. Or like the rubber stamp that they put over on that Romano cheese in Italy to make sure you know it's the real deal. It's authentic. It has the stamp of approval. And what Paul's saying is that we have been sealed. We have been marked out as God's people. And because of that, there is some behavior that is consistent with that identity. And there's some behavior that's inconsistent with that identity. He's contrasted those two things. He says lying is inconsistent with who you are in Christ. But speaking the truth is right where you want to be. Being angry and allow it to fester and ferment, inconsistent with the person you've become in Christ. So pursue reconciliation. Stealing to make ends meet, not consistent with who you are in Jesus. So do some hard work with your hands and be generous. Foul speech that corrupts the body, not consistent with who you are in Christ. So use your words to build each other up. And that's good. That's like what Jesus talks about. You can know a tree by its fruit. Trees don't lie. There's an apple on it. It's not an orange tree. It's an apple tree. The same way he says the fruit of our lives doesn't lie. But what you see on the branch is who you are in the root. A person doesn't bring good things out of a bad heart. It brings good things out of a good heart. And here Paul says that the danger, the downside to living inconsistently with our identity is not that we're necessarily going to miss out on heaven. That, hey, if you know, I don't get my act together, they're not going to let me in the gates. The danger is what it does to God. It says it, it grieves the Holy Spirit when we don't live consistently with who we are in Jesus. I really struggle with that. What does that mean to grieve? The word can mean distress. And if you think about it, um, the contrasting behavior of being distressed is being like totally at peace and joyful, whole. And there is a wholeness that comes when a Christian is walking with the Spirit. I mean, you know it in your own life. That when you live inconsistently, when you're not living out who God has made you to be, you're miserable. You're distressed. Everywhere you turn, it's like more and more and more piles up. But when you are walking with the Spirit, when you are pursuing the way of life that Christ Jesus has set you free for, you know how things just feel right. Things seem to click. And in the same way, beyond my comprehension, it's kind of a mystery to me. The same is true from God's perspective. God hurts when we live outside of His will. Like a parent who sees their kid making the same boneheaded mistake time and time and time and time and time again. God wants better for us than we give for ourselves. And it grieves the Spirit when we live inconsistently, when we fail to live out to the calling with which we've been called. And so Paul says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Instead, do what you know is right. Live out the life that Christ has called you to live. But this relationship doesn't end with the Holy Spirit. It also extends to the Father and to the Son. And quickly, that's what Paul says here in verses 31 and 32. He says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. 
See, the sealing of the Holy Spirit, it marks us as God's people. His brand of ownership on us. But the forgiveness that God extends to us in Christ is where it's at. Without that forgiveness, we wouldn't be sealed. But God has forgiven us, and He brings us into His family. I mean, remember, we were the people, Paul says in Ephesians 2.1, who were dead in our trespasses and sins. He said, we were without hope and without God in the world. A couple weeks ago, we saw that we were alienated from the life of God due to the ignorance that is in us. But in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. Now, we think about this sometimes. Mike, Mike helped us process that a little bit this morning. Like, what is God really up to in saving me? And we see how our lives fit into God's bigger plan. But have you thought about your life particularly lately? The specific things that God forgave you of. The careless words that you spoke. The evil thoughts. The rebellious behaviors. When you think about all the sin you committed. Imagine God with His book open. Each one written. And it says we'll give an account to Him for these things. And so He's keeping track of it. It's like in Jesus, for some reason, according to the riches of His grace, mystery of His will, out of His own good pleasure, as an overflow of His character, as a God who's gracious, merciful, compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, what God decided to do was before you or I were even born or had done anything that we could possibly point to as earning His favor and love, He decided that He would send His only begotten Son, who from all eternity had been with Him, dwelling in perfect harmony and love, He'd send him to earth to take on the form of a servant and be born in the likeness of men. Being found in that form, he'd humble himself and become obedient. Obedient even to the point of death. That God would send his only son to die for you. That is what Paul means when he says, just as God in Christ forgave you. That God went above and beyond, so far beyond anything we can imagine, comprehend that He took on Himself the burden of our sins that we could have forgiveness. That's what Paul means when he says that God in Christ forgave us. And because of that, it only makes sense that people who've experienced such lavish grace and mercy would extend it to others. That we'd be kind to each other, compassionate, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave us. After all, I mean, God's not bitter towards you. He doesn't bring those things from His book up to use against you. He's not angry at you. His wrath has been removed from you. It's been expiated. There's a good Bible word. It's been taken away by Jesus. He suffered the wrath you deserve. This is who God is for us what He has done in forgiving us. And consequently, our experience of forgiveness is supposed to transform the way we interact with each other. That a person who's been forgiven in that way has no room for holding a grudge, but should pursue forgiveness. 
I mean, Jesus' own disciples struggled with this. We think sometimes they're closer to him, so they must have come at it easier. But they were the stubbornest of them all. And Peter one day came to Jesus and said, I hear that you like to talk about forgiveness, but let me just understand things clearly. How many times do I have to forgive my brother? Like seven times? Seven, that number of completion, wholeness. Like if you've done it seven times, hey, you've done it enough. That's it. That's all it takes. Jesus said in, I think this is Matthew 18, 21. No, not seven times, but 70 times seven. And then he launches into this parable. Parable, the unforgiving servant. Jesus said, therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. He couldn't pay, so his master ordered that he be sold, along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned to pay the debt. But the man fell down before his master and begged him, Please be patient with me, and I will pay it all. Then his master was filled with pity for him, and he released him and forgave his debt. But the man left the king, and he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. And he grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. Be patient with me. And I will pay it, he pleaded. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. And they went to the king and told him everything that had happened. Then the king called in the man whom he'd forgiven, and he said, You evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. And that's what my heavenly Father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. Ouch. What room do we have to let bitterness take root, fester, ferment, causing dissension, division? Paul says for those who have been forgiven by God in Christ, it is totally inconsistent with who they are to allow bitterness and anger and wrath and clamor and slander to remain. They have to be put off and in their place, compassion, kindness, and forgiveness. You see, this is the transformed life that we've been talking about. Replacing those sinful behaviors that come all too naturally with the supernatural love, forgiveness that we see in Jesus. We can't do it on our own, making a checklist, learning the moves, we have to allow our experience of God's work in us to transform our relationships, to constantly remember what God has done for us in sealing us, marking us out as his own people, in forgiving us by the death of his son Jesus. And looking to Jesus, um, who's in verse 2 of chapter 5, 
said he loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant sacrificial offering to God. That's the way of life that we're called to. So I don't, I don't know about you. As I think about my life, I think about relationships where maybe I could be more loving. Places where I need to forgive and let go. Some unforgiveness and bitterness in my heart. I, and so I encourage you, like I'm going to do this week, think about it. Process it. Ask the Lord to show you. And then pursue the reconciliation that's appropriate. Will you all pray with me?